we need to move on now with the reading and proclaiming of God's word. And we're actually finishing a letter today, uh, the letter of 1 John. And as we've talked about and, and have experienced, John writes differently uh, than we are used to. Um, but his ending in particular has confused people for 2,000 years. So see if you can catch what I'm talking about and make sense of it. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. This is a reading from the word of the Lord, 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us his understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful that your word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we're grateful that uh, your word sent us your spirit that we might hear and believe. So, uh, Father, Son, Spirit, please be present here with us. Uh, We're grateful that that's what you promised to be, and help us to apply this word to our lives, uh, to your glory, and to our benefit and the blessing of others around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As a child of the 1980s, I have the right to say the following. There are only two real Indiana Jones movies, Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Last Crusade. Both movies, it turns out, are about idolatry. In each, the bad guys, the Nazis, are after artifacts from the biblical story. The Ark of the Covenant made under Moses' leadership and that went missing sometime in ancient Israel's history. And then the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus and the disciples drank from at the Last Supper. The bad guys suppose that having these objects will make them powerful. Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford, while not necessarily a deep believer, nonetheless knows that the things of God are not to be used for personal or national gain, and attempting to do so will, in fact, destroy you. Now, because it's about idolatry, one of the closing scenes of the Last Crusade illustrates the, the, the end of this letter of John's. The bad guy, Walter Donovan, he wants the Holy Grail so he can live forever. The Nazis have funded his search so they can use it as well. He gets into the cave where a knight has been guarding the grail for 700 years. But there are all kinds of cups, all kinds of possibilities, a large number. So Donovan asks, well, which one is it? And the knight replies, you must choose, but choose wisely. For as the grail will bring you life, 
the false grail will take it from you. Donovan ends up choosing the wrong cup and ultimately disintegrates on the spot. And like I said, this helps us understand the conclusion to this letter because John ends with what many have found to be a new random thought. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He has not mentioned idols yet or the problem of going to pagan temples and worship. It seems to come from out of the blue, but it's not out of the blue. It's perhaps the heart of what he's been saying all along. He's been trying to help his people understand who are the true believers and who are not. Who is the true God and who is not? And that's the whole point of this conclusion. Who is the true God? And once you've identified the true God, stay away from the false gods, the idols. Now, people were asking that question in the first century, and they're still asking it in the 21st century. Who is the true God? There are so many options. How could you possibly pick the one true God? And in fact, since there are so many options, it kind of seems like there is no one true God. And yet we're all serving things we hope and expect will bring us happiness, meaning, fulfillment, security. We are all in that cave at the end of the last crusade with all of these potential holy grails in front of us. We have to pick one, even if one of them is none of the above. How should we pick? Who or what is the true God? John says the true God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And this true God listens to you, fights for you, and wants to know and be known by you. Those are the three things that John brings to our attention at the end of his letter. And first, the the true God listens to you. Look at verses 13 through 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. John wants his readers and anyone else who trusts in Jesus to have confidence that their prayers are heard and answered. One of the privileges of being God's children is being able to petition the Father and know that the Father hears you. The true God is alive. The true God is listening and responds. So what this means is pray regularly, often. God is listening And a living, listening God responds. A lifeless God does not. So God listens and grants to all believers all their requests. Believe in Jesus and you you get a genie in a bottle, like Aladdin. No. John says we are to be confident that whatever we ask according to God's will, he hears and answers. Now that's quite a large caveat which can actually decrease or even destroy our confidence in prayer. And it brings up three questions I want to briefly address about prayer. So this first point is going to be slightly longer than the other two. Here's the first question. Why pray at all if whatever is going to happen is going to happen? God promises to say yes to everything he already has determined should happen. So what then? Don't waste your time. But I think that's a silly way to approach it. Let me try an analogy. If you have young children right now, 
and the world goes on, civilization goes on as it has been for the next 20 years, your kids are basically guaranteed they will not die of starvation. They will not die in the United States from lack of food. Now, you can refuse to feed your children. Well, they'll be taken from you, and someone else will get the joy of feeding them. You can be a part of them growing up. You can be a vessel God uses to sustain them into adulthood or not. Either way, they will make it and survive to adulthood. The question is, do you want to be a part of it or not? Do you want that joy and responsibility? In prayer, you are included in the eternal, glorious, working will of God. You get to share in that beauty. And God seems willing to wait for you and me to come up with great ideas and then pray for them. He condescends to work through our prayers freely offered. So pray. He is listening. Now, the second question might be, well, is it worth praying if we don't know God's will? How do we know if something we are requesting is God's will? What's the point of asking for something that is not God's will? It won't happen. In fact, we could find ourselves praying against God's will. So what that mindset can lead to is rather than praying, people spend their time trying to discern God's will about various things. Does he want you to pick this or that major? Take this or that job? Marry this or that person? Get pregnant now or in several years? Instead of choosing and acting, Christians can wait for some sign in the sky before doing anything. And Christians are supposed to have confidence in prayer and God in general. But having to figure out God's will first can actually suppress prayer and confidence in God. So the way to start in confident prayer is to pray God's promises back to him. The Bible is filled with God's promises to his people. And that's one sign he is listening. He invites us to remind him of his promises in prayer. Promises to us like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you. The lonely and isolated will be placed in families. Every tear will be wiped from your eyes. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who cry out for justice will see it happen, and the wicked will be crushed. If you are afraid or unsure about asking for anything, start with God's promises. About your particular circumstances at this moment, we don't know. God hasn't made any promises around your momentary comfort level, health, career success, or emotional fulfillment momentarily and we are unlikely to discern what his will might be about these things unless matters of morality are clearly involved so in these cases pray for what you want and think that you need informed by God's promises and character beyond God's promises we cannot know what will be so don't get caught up in figuring out what God's specific momentary will is instead Pray to God boldly and confidently for wisdom and courage that you might choose and live faithfully even with very incomplete information and answers. I trust that God promises to give me that when I ask for it. The third question would be, what about when God says no? Several years ago when my daughters were six, They were on a soccer team, the only time they ever played soccer. The team happened to be the best in the league, certainly not because of them. It's just random that they were on it. 
The second best team in the league, we beat twice in the regular season. But then at the sort of the round-robin concluding tournament, we had to play them in the championship game. And our team ended up losing in penalty kicks, right? Totally unfair. We were clearly better than them. We were enraged as parents. Now, as we were walking to the car after the game, one of my daughters, Ray Lynn, said to me, Daddy, I prayed to God that we would win, but we didn't win. And, you know, she was asking me the question, why didn't God see to it that we won? And she prayed. Why didn't God answer that prayer? Now, in the moment, I just channeled the movie Bruce Almighty, and I asked her, well, do you think any of the other kids on the other team were praying to win, like you were? And, like, the light bulb went on. She's like, yeah, I guess so. I said something about how God must have a tough job sorting through those prayers. But she still brings this episode up when she asks the same question that's being addressed in this text. How do we know this God is real? How do we know he's a true God? Remember, Daddy, he didn't answer my prayer, right? How do we know, especially when God doesn't answer our prayers? Sometimes he doesn't answer what feel like our most desperate prayers. When some of us were children and we weren't rescued from abusive situations. When some of us were pregnant and our child did not make it to birth. When some of us were lonely and we were not provided a spouse or friend. How can we say this is the true living God when sometimes we do not receive answers to these basic requests? Well, I'm going to say something. It's not always the right time to say this. I'm going to say it now. Hopefully, you're ready to hear it. The God who never says no to you is not the true God. Beware of the God whom you can manipulate and put in your debt. That's the lie of idolatry. That we can pray enough, give enough, sacrifice enough, that this powerful being will have to do what we demand. Isn't that how we often approach career or our bodies or our relationships, particularly our kids. We do the required work, we should get the expected return. The true, real God could never relate to us that way. The true God can say no to our most legitimate requests sometimes. He's better and more powerful than us. He knows the end from the beginning. And he can use our free choices and everyone else's to fulfill his sovereign will. A God who never says no is not the true God. Maybe that feels like a cop-out, right? That because he's God, he can say no to our most obviously good prayers. It feels like letting God off the hook. Except that God put himself on the hook. The night Jesus, the Son of God, equal with the Father, was facing betrayal and execution, he begged his Father in prayer to let his cup of suffering pass. He sweat blood. He was so stressed and afraid. And if any prayer ever had merit, based on the justice of the request and the innocence of the requester, it was this prayer. And the Father said, no. Why? So that he could say an eternal yes to all of us. What would we think of a parent who never says no to their child? Just because God says no sometimes doesn't mean he's not listening. And the fact that he said no to Jesus in order to save us 
should prove to us that he is indeed listening and is indeed the true God. So pray. The true God listens to you. And secondly, the true God also fights for you. Look at verses 18 and 19. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What John assumes here is that there is a war for souls. And from John's perspective, the war doesn't end simply because you become a Christian. The world of human-centered desires and human glory is hostile. Evil still tries to get at you. And, and what he wrote earlier is that sinfulness in ourselves still needs to be confessed and fought. And the point here is that the true God fights for his people. The reason why evil cannot touch God's children is because the one who was born of God prevents it. Who is that one? Jesus Christ. And he prevents the evil one from touching his people by covering them with his sacrifice and filling them with his spirit. We spoke about the big word John uses a few times in his letter, propitiation. Jesus, by offering himself up to the Father, dying on the cross, takes our place. Jesus takes whatever legitimate claim evil has over us. Jesus fulfills whatever legitimate claim justice has to punish us. This God bled for you to protect you from falling into the clutches of evil, to protect you from the eternal consequences of your own darkness. Is there another God who bleeds for his people? Another God so personally involved? In the Revolutionary War, George Washington was not known for being a military genius. His powers of strategery were middling at best. Tactically, he was better at retreating than advancing. But whatever he lacked in military prowess, he made up for in courage and character. His men knew him to be someone who stayed up on his horse, on the front lines, directing and urging them on. There are stories of musket ball holes found through his coats and hats. Subordinates would have to pull him away from the fighting. And it's not that Washington loved the battle. It's that in his mind, how could he ask men to risk their lives for him if he wasn't risking his life for them? This is why his men and country loved him. Whatever authorities and powers, whatever gods we have in our individual lives, whether it's money or status or control or people-pleasing or some literal god, none of them serve us. We serve them. They don't bleed for us. We bleed for them. They're not going to serve us. But the true God serves you. The true God fights for you. The true God bleeds for you. And he doesn't fight for you just on the cross. If you trust in Jesus, then his spirit is in you now, fighting your sin nature, as we read in Galatians 5. And you're called to cooperate, to fight along with him. God is fighting for you. No one born of God keeps on sinning. So you are called to fight the sin in you. And as long as you are fighting, you know you belong to God because you'll find him there in the thick of the battle for you. Stop fighting, give up on the struggle, and you don't have as much ground for confidence.
So this confidence that God hears us in prayer and that God fights for us is what beh- it's what's behind these odd verses about the sin that leads to death. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Very, very confusing for us. But to make it very basic, if you are a Christian and you see a fellow church member sinning, pray for them. Amazingly, God will use your prayer to bring that sinner back to a deeper, richer relationship with God. This happens except when the sinner is sinning the sin which leads to death. What is that sin? Well, it's what these people who left John's community were doing. Remember, John wrote this letter because people left his churches. And they were chucking the historic apostolic faith. They were teaching a false gospel and lying about God. They were denying God's commandments in their lives and refusing to love others. It was total proactive rejection of the Christian faith from people who at one point had received it. John is not saying there's no hope for these people. Enemies of the faith are saved oftentimes. Remember, Paul the apostle himself was an enemy of the church. What John is saying is that we can have great confidence that our prayers will be effective in the person's life who, though sinning, still wants to follow Jesus however weakly and imperfectly. We cannot have that same confidence in our prayers for people who have left the fellowship and become enemies of the faith. You might be wondering or concerned, have I committed the sin that leads to death? Probably not if you're worried about it. Probably not if the pastors and elders of your church are still welcoming you to the communion table. What is the difference between a quote-unquote regular sinner and someone sinning the sin that leads to death? Repentance. Confessing your sin and turning from it in the power of Jesus is always effective and always brings you to a place of safety. And the same is true for the people who have left the church. The door remains open for them. And if they repent, they will be saved. But as we read here, sadly, there are some who never do. John is saying to his people, these guys who left us, they may never come back. We don't know. God might not answer our prayers for them. But we know God will answer our prayers for each other as we struggle against sin. So pray for each other. God fights for us against the evil out there and the evil inside of us. He calls us to fight the evil inside of us and he calls us to pray against the evil inside of each other. He calls us to pray for each other. Not criticize, not write off, not shut out. Pray for each other when we see each other sinning. Is there someone here troubling you? Someone here annoying you? Someone here hurting you? Or someone here whose actions and personas simply you don't understand and you fear might be caught up in sin. Pray for that person a lot. Do not talk behind that person's back or criticize them. Do not compare notes with other people about that person. Speak with a pastor or elder if you need advice on how to proceed with that person. But do not correct or confront anyone until you have prayed for them a lot. We can trust God to hear our prayers 
for our brothers and sisters. He fights for us. We must fight for each other in prayer. The true God listens to you. The true God fights for you. And finally, the true God wants to know and be known by you. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Some of my non-Christian friends would pick up on this language of knowing God and being in God and say, Yes, this, this is what all humans ultimately want. This is what all faiths are ultimately about. The goal of most faith and belief systems is connecting with and uniting with the infinite, eternal, highest good, the source of all life. We all agree. Well, John is saying that the thing that makes Christianity unique, a key distinction between the true God and false gods, is that through Jesus, the infinite, eternal, highest good, source of life, first connects with us. The true God first comes to us, makes himself known, reveals himself. The Son of God, who is one with the Father and Spirit, came to us to show us who God is. You and I cannot imagine what it takes for God to squeeze the eternal and infinite, total perfection and holiness and goodness of the divine into a human being. That's who Jesus is, fully God, fully man. To his disciples, Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This taking on flesh, this incarnation in itself is a sacrificial act for God to become man. Why did he do it? So we might know him and he might know us. And since God is God and we are sinful people, he has to come our way. He has to make the first move. This uh, passage has the verb to know all over the place, right? We know we are from God. We know the Son of God has come. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. You know that you have eternal life, right, over and over again. And, And John's talking about intellectual knowledge. But in the middle of verse 20, John uses a different word for know. It has a a relational connotation. He says, he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. This kind of knowing is the kind the Bible uses for intimacy and connection. Being in Jesus and knowing Jesus means being united to him. And this takes intimacy, exposure, vulnerability, on his part, Jesus lets us into his most tender spots, the weeping and shuddering before Lazarus's tomb, the lamenting over Jerusalem, the rejection by his family, the stab in the back by Judas, the sweating blood and asking for his cup to pass. Jesus lets us in to overhearing his father say no to him, to being rejected by his father. Ultimately, Jesus shows us who he truly is, dying on the cross, humiliated. Jesus doesn't cover up anything for us so that we might know him fully, put our trust in him fully, abide in him fully. And he wants to know us and abide in us. And that's why he came as he did, a nobody's son from a no-name town, nowhere to lay his head. He wanted to know 
what it was like to be us. Truly, no. It's the opposite of the movie Meet Joe Black. Maybe you, maybe you saw this in the 90s. It's a movie where the person of death, right, death personified, wants to know what it's like to be a human being. So he decides to hang around in a beautiful man's body, played by Brad Pitt. He retains his omniscience and omnipotence, and he lives with a very wealthy, honorable man, Anthony Hopkins. Death falls in love with the honorable man's beautiful daughter, and lo and behold, the beautiful daughter falls in love with him in return. All in a few weeks. And then he goes back to his normal day job, and he had a grand tour of humanity. That's not what Jesus did. When you want to know and be known by somebody, you enter their world, particularly the tougher, messier parts. Imagine a husband refusing to accompany his wife whenever she visits her troubled family. That's not intimacy or being known. Jesus got to know our tougher, messier parts. He knows hunger and thirst. He knows rejection and racism. He knows assault and false witnesses. He knows abandonment and loneliness. He knows celibacy and fighting temptation. He knows what it's like to not have his prayers answered. He knows what it's like to be stripped before men who planned on hurting him for for their own pleasure. He fully knows our troubled, messy parts so so we could trust him and in full vulnerability let him in. And he could be united to each of us. There's plenty of non-Christians would agree that our goal is to be united to to the divine, but the true God unites to the sinner and saves him. Doesn't that make more sense? Doesn't the Christian story connect the dots better? Some years ago, there was a, a tragedy that occurred at a British sporting event where a large number of people, most of them young men, were trampled to death. An official was meeting with anxious parents who had gathered to hear the names of those who had been killed. And when he finished reading the list, he assured the parents that he personally, as a Christian, would be praying that God would bring them comfort. And out of the group came the anguished cry of a grieving father. What does God know about losing a son? What does God know about losing a son? See, God the Son came in the flesh so that God would know in order that we would know him. At the end of the last crusade, when it was Indiana Jones' turn to pick the Holy Grail, he had all these choices, gold and jewel-encrusted cups, but he kept looking until he found a common clay cup, and he said, that's the cup of a carpenter. And he was right. See, the true God humbles himself so that he can listen to us and fight for us to know and be known by us. Don't settle for anything less. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for your love, that you would love us to such an extent that you would come and live among us and die an awful death and then pour out your spirit upon us and fight for us against the darkness and against the sin in us. We are grateful that you know us fully and completely and you invite us to know you and to be connected and united to you. Would you help us to to want that 
Help us to taste that. Help us to pursue that. Help us to trust you as our one true God. And help us to keep away, to turn away from idols, from false gods, whether they're the the literal false gods out there or simply money or success or status or comfort, whatever it might be. Help us to pursue you and know you above everything else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.